Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Just 10 days after a mob of Trump supporters laid siege to the Capitol, President Joe Biden began his term with words designed to heal a fractured nation. Today, we celebrate the triumph not of a candidate, but of a cause. Restore the soul and secure the future of America requires so much more than words. It requires the most elusive of all things in a democracy. Unity. Coming up, we'll talk more about what his speech says about Biden's vision of and for the nation. But first, the new president got right to work yesterday, signing more than a dozen executive orders around everything from climate change to immigration. And there's plenty more to come, especially with COVID-19 killing thousands of Americans daily. With us now, Domenico Montanero, NPR senior political editor and correspondent. Domenico, welcome to Reset. Hey, thanks for having me. Also with us is E.J. Fagan, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Professor Fagan, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Domenico, there's been a lot of activity over the last 24 hours. What's the mood in Washington this morning? It almost looks like a kind of return to normal, you know, at least in tone, right? I mean, President Biden now uh, has set a kind of tone to at least talk about uh, more of a sort of traditional Washington comedy where, you know, you're not questioning people's motivations, as he talks about. You know, and I think returning to normal, though, doesn't necessarily mean unity. <laughs> I think it, it yeah. might just mean people not storming the Capitol if they can have leaders expressing why violence isn't the way to, you know, express uh, your displeasure. Because what I think we're going to be heading back to is almost a split Congress, uh, you know, 50-50 in the Senate, closely divided in the House. There are a lot of things, a lot of bold initiatives that President Biden wants to get done. I was struck by how bold he was actually in that speech in also discussing unity, discussing things like climate change, racial justice, how much money wants to be spent for COVID-19. Those are going to be a lot of things that Republicans disagree with in in the Democrats' approach. And I think normal is going to look like the same old partisan gridlock and bickering. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of folks saying he sure didn't waste any time. Professor Fagan, what's top of mind for you today as we look forward to this new administration? Well, I think we're about to see some very large changes in in the vaccine rollout for COVID-19. The Trump administration had largely left vaccine distribution and administration to the states where they distributed the vaccines, they developed the vaccine, but then they said, you know, this is your job to do now. Whereas the Trump, the, um, the Biden administration is very clear that FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, uh, and, and other federal agencies will be very actively involved in, in actually administering vaccines and setting up community health centers uh, and, and actively negotiating with other providers in a very active and very different way, which will be an important logistical challenge because we saw the old model struggled with a relatively small vaccine rollout, and we're about to see orders of magnitude more vaccines have to be administered uh, administered in the next few months. President Biden hit the ground running, signing more than a dozen executive orders on his first day, starting with a federal mask mandate. Uh, Domenico, he says there's no time to waste. So uh, what else? 
we've already seen a raft of executive orders at least signifying the direction that this administration wants to go. Uh, you know, rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, for example, and making climate a huge front and center issue uh, for Biden, who has not shied away from that at all. I mean, I think we're talking about a complete 180. A lot of those environmental regulations that President Trump rolled back that the uh, Obama Environmental Protection Agency put into place, we're going to see a lot of those put back into place. You know, a lot of the people who work for President Biden worked in past administrations, past Democratic administrations in the eight years of the Obama administration. They know where the regulations are buried, so to speak. They know where what, what the levers of government are. He has people in place with the vaccine rollout who have done this sort of thing, not quite on this scale, mm -hmm. uh, before. And they have hit the ground running and are very clear about what their priorities are, how they're going to implement things, and uh, not kind of waiting around for winning over people in Congress. The president also moved quickly to end the Muslim travel ban and, and rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement. Can you tell us more about that, Professor? Many of Donald Trump's major accomplishments were not legislative. They were executive actions. They were, they were things that came directly out of the White House. In fact, many of them weren't even regulations, which take a little bit more time to undo. And so many of these actions, uh, President Biden was able to immediately, re immediately reverse. And uh, rejoining the Paris Climate Accords, I think, is, is in particular something that he has been talking about for a very long time. It, it fits into his theme of uh, reestablishing foreign policy through diplomacy rather than through the military, through defense policy. And I think it will be met with quite a lot of relief around the world as the United States is back in the climate game. We're about to see a very large spending bill out of Congress. And I suspect a large part of that spending bill will be to fulfill those obligations in the Paris Climate Accords and move uh, much of the United States, especially electrical electricity generation, away from fossil fuels. Professor Kamala Harris, let's talk about her. She's making history here, the first black and first South Asian vice president, first woman, the highest ranking woman to ever serve in the White House. We've come a long way, right? We have come a long way. And I, I think that because of the, attack, the, the events of the Capitol, because of the events of, of the last four years, it's easy to forget the history that, that we are witnessing. When Barack Obama was, was inaugurated as the first Black president, um, you know, we, we still had a lot, of, a lot of different firsts that we had to accomplish. And I think we can all be proud of the first that we accomplished uh, with uh, now Vice President Harris's swearing in. I think what's also important is that Harris will play an active role, and, and in fact, Joe Biden is playing an active role in elevating the next generation of, uh, of non-white male officials in the federal government. And they've done, they've done a great job of, of what I think is, frankly, a, a, a very historically diverse cabinet. And even more so, below the cabinet-level positions, the next up uh, members of Democratic administrations, the people who are now deputy secretaries, you might not hear, you might not recognize their voices, but are in practice leading these agencies. Yeah. They are a very diverse, uh, diverse set. And I suspect uh, Vice President Harris will play a role over the next four years in continuing that, that effort. Biden repeated calls for unity during his inauguration, as we mentioned. It was a really sharp turn from Trump's uh, American carnage address four years ago. Let's listen. Mothers and children trapped in poverty, rusted out factories, young and beautiful students deprived of all knowledge, the crime, the gangs, the drugs. This American carnage stops right now. Professor Fagan, briefly, what stood out to you from Biden's first speech? In office. You know, every every inaugural address, you want you want one thing to take away, right? We, we have we have these lines we remember uh, from an inauguration, uh, from individual inaugurations, and I think the lines we'll remember from this inauguration are about truth and science. President Biden, 
uh, and others have correctly diagnosed the problem that led to the attack on the Capitol and led to much of the biggest issues of the Trump years has been disinformation, not only from President Trump, but also I think it's a more broad issue. It's an issue that uh, the, the White House modeled yesterday when they did things like, like, like held a very normal, very in many ways boring press briefing mm-hmm. uh, that, that you, you, you were, we were used to seeing for so long before the Trump administration. Uh, but I also think that they will address this with public policy. There's been a, a considerable uh, discussions on how to curtail or reduce misinformation on social media. I think those discussions will continue uh, and they will discuss, they'll will, they will continue both in the White House and in Congress. Domenico, what else does the Biden administration have planned for his first week or so in office? Well, there are still going to be some of these uh, executive actions that they're going to be taking place, uh, they're going to be using, but they want to get that $1.9 trillion COVID relief package moving as quickly as possible. They also need to get their cabinet secretaries confirmed, and that's going to be complicated by President Trump's impeachment trial that's still going to be taking place, could come as early as Monday. And, you know, they're going to have to try to split the day. I was pretty struck in that speech, following up on what the professor was saying there, that it was pretty clear Biden wasn't naive about American disunity and the challenge of bringing the country together. He talked about news silos. He talked about white supremacy, the first president ever to do that in an inaugural address. He talked about how women in 1913 were injured trying to go uh, march for voting rights, which they didn't have at the time. And the point that President Biden now mm-hmm. said is that in these moments, enough of us come together to carry all of us forward. I thought that was a really incisive line. We've been speaking with E.J. Fagan, Assistant Professor of Political Science at UIC and NPR Senior Political Editor and Correspondent, Domenico Montanaro. Thanks to both of you. Thanks so much for having us. To all those who did not support us, let me say this. Hear me out as we move forward. Take a measure of me and my heart. If you still disagree, so be it. That's democracy. Yet hear me clearly. Disagreement must not lead to disunion. And I pledge this to you. I will be a president for all Americans. That's more from President Joe Biden's inaugural address. The speech he delivered was, in many ways, classic Biden. It stressed empathy, compassion, shared destiny, and resiliency in the face of hardship. Past inaugural speeches have tended toward the optimistic and the aspirational. We look upon this shaken earth and we declare our firm and fixed purpose, the building of a peace with justice in a world where moral law prevails. If a free society cannot help the many who are poor, it cannot save the few who are rich. The time has come to reaffirm our enduring spirit, to choose our better history, to carry forward that precious gift, the God-given promise that all are equal, all are free, and all deserve a chance to pursue their full measure of happiness. And earlier in the podcast, we heard the dark, depressing American carnage imagery of former President Trump. For a closer look at Biden's speech, we're joined by Jason DeSanto. He's a senior lecturer at Northwestern's Pritzker School of Law. He's also a Democratic debate strategist. And Rick Perlstein is here. He's going to give us some historical context. He's the author of The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon, and The Rise of Reagan, and also the book Nixonland, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America. Jason, Rick, welcome to Reset. Thank you. Glad to be here. Jason, I'll start with you. What themes stood out for you when you listened to President Biden's speech? Well, kind of going off the clips that you played, Sasha Ann, I think 
this speech did what most inaugural addresses do in the sense that it attempted to unify the citizenry, a peaceful transition of power, reinforcing those guardrails, so to speak, and then also trying to renew the best American values and traditions. What I thought was interesting about the speech is the way that it did that. It actually made arguments for how one models unity and the mm. process of unity. And that's a little bit different. And then in choosing those values to pull forward, the value that it chose, I think, most eloquently and directly was truth and the notion of truth. And that's a departure. You don't see that in very many inaugural addresses, perhaps Gerald Ford when he took office in 1974 and FDR in 1933 in the midst of the Depression. But I thought those two components were striking. Why don't you pick up where he left off, Rick? What stood out for you? Yeah, I think there was a little bit of a cliched sort of uh, energy to it, which is fine. I, I think context is everything. I think he could have recited the alphabet and it would have been uplifting if, as long as he got the letters <laughs> in the right order. Right. I think the real uh, inaugural dress, ironically, was the one delivered by America's Youth Poet Laureate, yes. uh, Amanda Gorman, who just knocked it out of the park with an address speaking about what uh, I think it was James Baldwin said was achieving our country. We are striving to forge our union with purpose, to compose a country committed to all cultures, colors, characters, and conditions of man. And so we lift our gaze not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. At 22 years old, her speech was, was absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. And, and Biden did well. He spoke to an alternate set of values than the ones that have been infesting the White House for the last four years. And it came off very well. And uh, he's off to a good start. So, Jason, Rick mentions you know, lots of cliches in the speech. What did you want to hear from his speech? And do you feel that the president delivered in that moment? I do. And, and to Rick's point, it had some of the, the archetypes of inaugural addresses. It brought about unity. It kind of renewed our traditions. It talked about things that we need to work on urgently. But it did it in a personal way. I mean, Biden hmm. is not going to bring the kind of thunder that Obama did or in that rousing JFK <clears throat> portion that you played. I mean, this is going to be the first inaugural address that I can think of where words like folks, I get it look, you know, very conversational Biden-esque terminology was involved. And I think that's a good thing, you know, especially when you are pitching something which can be as intangible as unity, people have to see you as credible. And so you've got to be yourself and you have to model in a way what being someone who is preaching unity would look like. I think he did that. So I would measure this speech by two measures. The first is over the long haul both now and to history, does it define the, the problems we're facing right now and the challenges we're facing right now as it speaks down through history into this time? And I think it did that by talking about disunity and disinformation. And then in terms of building political capital, which is the real short-term achievement of a speech, I think it did that too. You know, to Rick's point, if you were for Biden, I think you felt catharsis. If you were for Trump and not a white supremacist, you at least <laughs> thought Joe Biden was a decent person and might give you a hearing. And I think if you're non-political, and I think that's the group that we don't think about enough, people who may have voted but don't view themselves as political or people who didn't vote, I think at the least you felt you would get some relief. And I think all those things are important moving forward. Well, let's hear more about unity. As you mentioned, unity was also a major theme in the president's speech. 
on this January day, my whole soul is in this, bringing America together, uniting our people, uniting our nation. And I ask every American to join me in this cause. Uniting to fight the foes we face, anger, resentment and hatred, extremism, lawlessness, violence, disease, joblessness, and hopelessness. With unity, we can do great things, important things. So I'll put this question to you, Rick. Given the current yeah. state of the Republican Party, what's the likelihood of this happening? Well, this is interesting. This is a big theme in my own writing, my history writing, and my journalism, that you know, unity is by far the most overrated uh, value in a democracy. You know, democracy is a form of government that presumes that you don't need unity. You just need people to basically follow the rules and go away when they don't win, you know, 50 percent plus one of the vote. There's no real possibility of unity in a nation that's as kind of diverse, ideologically diverse as America. Uh, and the problem with unity as an overriding goal is unity often works at cross purposes with the necessity of judgment, right, of reckoning. You know, if we are going to judge people who, you know, basically were collaborators with dictatorship, it's not um, uniting, right? It's difficult. The work of justice is difficult. So that's my concern that, you know, this you know, kind of career-long commitment that Joe Biden has made to, you know, this idea of consensus, uh, it's good political rhetoric, and I don't gainsay him that. You know, it's a very, um, it's a very uplifting civic vision. So you, so you don't think it's possible? By kind of looking the other way, uh, then um, we're not going to transcend the wounds that Donald Trump has visited upon our kind of social body. So you're not, you're not buying it. Well, I mean, you know, I think it, you have to say it, right? Uh, it's kind of like a, a cliched formulation, but he needs to grasp. Uh, I think, uh, within the White House. You know, something that, you know, kind of um, Nancy Pelosi said the other day, she said, you know, we're not going to look beyond this. If, you know, people were giving tours of the Capitol, you know, to, to people who wanted to, you know, lynch people who worked in the Capitol, we're going to prosecute them. You know, we're not going to seek to unify with them. So that's a that's a difficult needle to thread, yeah. right? But if it means, you know, for example, that Joe Biden is going to do with, you know, sort of Gerald Ford did, you know, say 1975 and say, well, I'm actually just going to pardon uh, Richard Nixon, and we're not going to like deal with the, the damage he did to America. We're just going to kind of look the other way, or what Obama did even in 2009 when he said, you know, we're going to look forward and not backward. And a lot of the, uh, the the issues that George Bush visited upon the White House that doesn't help us, right? It just kind of infantilizes us as a nation. And I hope that we can kind of both to have the national maturity to mm -hmm. realize that there's more to life than kind of uh, shoving our differences under the rug, uh, but also, yes, obviously, restore the guardrails of democracy and, you know, this kind of decency and mutual respect that, in fact, is you know, a necessary right. component of democratic life. Hey, Jason, from what you heard in the speech, what do you view as the president's major legislative priorities right now? Well, I think his major priority period is is addressing COVID mm -hmm. and and the economic unwinding that has occurred because of COVID. It's obviously a public health emergency. It's an economic emergency. It is through a series of executive orders and what they previewed coming in. That's what he was going to place at the top of his list. And I think one of the key moments yesterday 
we talk about truth as a as a primary element of the speech. I mean, he said a number of things about that. He said, I'll always level with you. He railed against disinformation and, in essence, propaganda. But the other thing that he did was he had a moment of silence for COVID and for the lost lives and destroyed lives from COVID. And I took that to be enacting truth rather than spinning the facts or avoiding the facts, bearing witness to what actually had occurred. And I think that centers what his priorities are, but also centers a value that he wants to emphasize and use and enact in beginning his legislative and executive agenda. And that is a reliance upon transparency and truth. We saw that with a press briefing yesterday. I think that's an auspicious beginning and an important one. Uh, and I would encourage him to continue to do that because there will be times when maybe they're gonna be less transparent as White Houses often are when faced with questions from the press. But I think that is a good start. It is part of bringing integrity, not only to the COVID question, but also to the question of building mutual tolerance and building a real union is having a shared set of facts that people in a democracy can agree upon. Yeah. President Biden also mentioned defeating systemic racism and other issues that are important to progressives like the climate. This clip from President Roosevelt's first inauguration speech in back in 1933, it, it summarizes the feelings of the new blood in the Democratic Party. Only a foolish optimist can deny the dark realities of the moment. Primarily, this is because the rulers of the exchange of mankind's goods have failed through their own stubbornness and their own incompetence. Happiness lies not in the mere possession of money. It lies in the joy of achievement, in the thrill of creative effort, the joy, the moral stimulation of work. No longer must be forgotten in the mad chase of evanescent profit. Jason, can you talk briefly about the internal struggles that lie ahead within the Democratic Party? I think what's interesting about that clip and what ties into your question is the fact that Roosevelt was identifying a set of values that we should be striving against, materialism, and people who embodied it, the people who really are the enemies and the people who are outside the circle of unity. So if we fold back into mm -hmm. the theme of unity in this speech, what's interesting about what Biden did is he did put some people outside the circle of unity, white supremacists. And so if you are a Trump supporter who does not fashion yourself as a white supremacist, you can put yourself outside the circle of those people, but put yourself inside the circle of the reasonable ones, the ones who are willing to listen, the ones who maybe disagree on policy, but believe Joe Biden is a good guy and might go along with him. And there's a little bit of an historical antecedent for that, which is actually the last time that the Capitol was an armed camp during an inauguration, which was in 1861. And Abraham Lincoln made an argument that day quite literally about the nature of union, a legal argument, yeah. a legal argument that the South actually couldn't secede. And that was about the Constitution. Well, he wasn't making that argument to the seven states that had seceded. They'd already done that. He was making that argument to border states. He was making that argument to northern moderates. And what he was saying was, I'm the reasonable one. Our position is the reasonable one. And the other ones are outside the circle. Yesterday, I think in arguing for union, the tell for Biden was when he looked at our history and said, over time, enough of us have agreed on mm. progress. And it's that enough of us, not in making a legal argument, but a moral argument yesterday as to what tolerance, 
mutual respect, listening, hearing actually looks like. And if you're on the side of that, it's not some fantasy version of unity. Yeah. It's more of a unity of purpose and process. And I think that was uh, a major component of the speech. Yeah, great point. Rick, I hear you agreeing there. And I, yeah, I want to... really well said. <laughs> yeah, you, and you, Rick, you, you write extensively about how the Trump administration reflects a historic toxicity in American yeah. culture and politics. It, what do yeah. you want to see from our institutions going forward then to, to really have a true reckoning, in your opinion? Yeah, that's that's a very uh, fascinating question. I was very struck by uh, Senator Rand Paul's response to the speech. He said, if you read this speech and listen to it carefully, much of it is thinly veiled innuendo, calling us white supremacists, calling us racist, calling us every name in the book, calling us people who don't tell the truth, which was just a fascinatingly telling formulation because he was recognizing himself within the us. Uh, that uh, Joe Biden was defining as kind of outside the circle of consensus in America. There was a certain kind of, if the shoe fits, wear it kind of quality to his, you know, response. But if there's an on-ramp to at least, if not, you know, voting for Biden or supporting Biden, at least, you know, not considering him, you know, part of the conspiracy of elites who are, you know, stealing babies. If there's kind of a way of kind of letting them down, the people who are kind of in on the Donald Trump con and just kind of letting them save face, you know, then, you know, Biden is going to have a lot better chance of, you know, restoring confidence in government, which obviously he's trying to do with his COVID response, which is about, you know, saving lives, the mm-hmm. most basic function of uh, government. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Columnist Rick Perlstein is author of the books The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon, and The Rise of Reagan, and also Nixonland, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America. And Jason DeSanto is a senior lecturer at the Northwestern University Pritzker School of Law, also a Democratic debate strategist. Jason and Rick, thanks so much for being with us and breaking all of that down. Thank you. And that's today's Reset. For more great conversations like these, go to our archives at wbez.org slash reset. And watch this feed for WBEZ's weekly news roundup that comes to you every Friday afternoon. And Sundays, it's the best COVID-19 Q&A in the potosphere with Dr. Mia Teramina. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss a minute. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again soon. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.